This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baden, and I'm here today with Judson Jacobs and Carolyn Sito to talk about upstream technology from the perspective really of incumbents or integrated oil companies. Judd, Caroline, how are you? I said Caroline. Carolyn, how are you? Thanks. Doing well. Thanks, Hill. So for, for those listening earlier, we were talking about different name, or, uh, but before we hit record, talking about different name pronunciations, and we were talking about the difference in Caroline and Caroline, which is what tripped me up. Um, that's the first and only time I will call you Caroline. So sorry, Caroline. All right. So the 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 topic here being, in, in a sense, the incumbents dilemma that that there's so much news and activity around the transition to low carbon forms of energy, and really my curiosity is where you guys and I know you guys are doing a lot of work on upstream technology, how we should view the role of the incumbent, the incumbent being the integrated oil companies. Should we look at these guys as providers of capital to new innovators? Should we be looking at them as innovators themselves? The whole landscape of this, because obviously this is a group that has potential to be disrupted and or lead uh, the energy transition as low carbon energies become prioritized or continue to be prioritized. So maybe Judd, as just a, a place to get us started, help us frame where the integrated oil companies are today and the, the, the path to integration over the past 10 years or so. So how should we view some of the activities and, and, and where the, the organizations are right now? Sure. And thanks, so. And I think, um, you know, I think we're going to have a lot to talk about today because there's obviously a lot of activity taking place within the oil and gas sector, moving into the low carbon space or the energy transition, however you want to refer to it. And, and we we look at oil and gas technology and innovation and kind of those themes, kind of a broad set of themes, both the strategic as well as the tactical and practical. And so I think it's fair to say that, you know, whereas we've been looking at primarily um, activities going back, you know, you know, kind of 15, 20 years in our group, those that are focused more on the EMP sector and the refining sector, we follow our, you know, the companies that we follow and our, our clients, you know, where they're going. And I think it's it's fair to say that over the last 5, 10, 15 years, a lot of our research and activities have been directed towards into the low carbon space because that's obviously where a lot of the effort amongst these companies are being directed. And we can certainly go into the different aspects and how, how they're pursuing low carbon, which you know, it's a big universe of, of items. But, but one of the things that I did want to do, and I appreciate you, you, know, you know, kind of getting a bit of context, is that I think one of the, the ways that we kind of think about this and how these types of companies, and whether that's the oil companies, whether it's the, the service companies, or whether it's you know, broader industrials, but how they position themselves to play really well in this space, there's a bit of a broader story. And you know, if you go back to and thinking about how the oil and gas sector has thought about technology development innovation, going back a couple of decades and even further than that, traditionally it's been viewed as proprietary technology development, that there is an advantage, a competitive advantage associated with the development of a set of technologies. That's either gaining access to resources, differential performance against peers, 
you know, lots of different ways or, you know, kind of creating new markets and new business opportunities. Lots of different ways they can kind of gain competitive advantage. And so they were investing quite a bit in internal R&D. They were developing and protecting their intellectual property through patents and other means. Uh, they were expanding their R&D networks, kind of going back again, looking back. This has shifted in the last 10 or 15 years. And what we've really begun to see, and there's a number of different drivers, and Carolyn will go into this, but they they're kind of have a different viewpoint and a different philosophy, and they've shifted much more to an open innovation model. And there's lots of different ways that they're doing this and whether it's engaging more actively with startups that are active in a number of different areas, whether they're uh, technology development partnerships, whether they're doing even things like crowdsourcing. But it's this view of kind of letting go a little bit and the mm -hmm. recognition that technology development innovation can take place outside of the corporate walls as well and kind of picking and choosing those areas where being a bit more selective on where they can deliver differential um, competitive advantage through technology. When they were first doing this 10 or 15 years ago, it was, it was playing in their traditional space. It was in the, whether it's in the upstream space or the other spaces, but where this has kind of gone, especially as they initially, as they moved into digital, and I think there was a recognition of the part of the oil and gas industry, rightfully so, that there was a lot of fast moving innovation taking out place outside of the industry. And the idea of being able to develop this um, kind of internally and be able to commercialize this and productize this, it's a bit of a fool's errand. And so there was a great openness we saw, and Carolyn will go into some of the details and kind of the shifts that we saw in some of the you know, kind of partnering activity and, and kind of like. What this has done is that it's positioned the oil and gas industry very well now to play in the low carbon and energy transition space. Because even more so than you kind of mentioned the, the digital side, moving into an era that area that maybe they didn't have um, domain knowledge, even more so in the energy transition space. And what they're looking for now is how they can begin to marry their core competencies and their resources and assets. And they begin to think about, OK, well, where should we play in this space and where, where are we to the greatest advantage? But feel free to jump in help, and ask another question. But I will I am now going to turn it over to Carolyn, though, and kind of talk a little bit about as we've moved, you know, shifted this open innovation towards low carbon energy transition. Um, how is that beginning to play out? Yeah, you spark a bunch of questions. But before I go into them, let, let's hear from Carolyn on uh, some of the details and examples that, that you just flagged. Yeah, thanks um, for that setup, Ted. So, you know, we've seen, um, you know, you, you mentioned open innovation and one really great tool oil and gas companies have been leveraging for open innovation is um, engagements with startups and through the corporate venture capital groups. Uh, they've been making, um, you know, minority investments in startups that were doing uh, really, really cutting edge technology development. And it reflects where cutting edge technology development, be it in digital or in um, clean tech with uh, mm -hmm. new materials needed and new processes needed, where that is happening. And that's happening with these smaller, nimbler startups that come up with the ideas, that do fast prototyping, that try things out, and that don't have the culture or the needs of other you know, conventional business lines that are pulling on that, you know, technology demand or scientific knowledge and engineering resources to still maintain that, uh, you know, that, that core competency and activity. Um, we see this, first of all, we saw this with, um, you know, just minority investments in new startups developing things like new carbon capture technologies, like, uh, you know, Chevron's investment in clean carbon 
Swante, but we've also seen this in investments in new technology platforms, digital platforms for being able to quantify greenhouse gas emissions, as well as identify them at scale too, to provide a solution for going to be a, a global problem. So, you know, BP Ventures investments in satellites, uh, which was using a remote, um, you know, sensing uh, platform to be able to um, identify and detect methane, but also providing a platform to be able to you know, distribute that data you know, very seamlessly to the engineers on the ground and the pumpers on the ground to be able to make decisions and to change their operational activities. Now we've seen as companies have gotten more experience in engaging with startups and engaging with these smaller companies and how they innovate, they're now more comfortable in having broader and deeper technology development partnerships. So having more formal technology partnerships and longer term where they're now supporting the scaling of these, these ideas. So this recognition, I think that you know, the oil and gas industry and um, you know, all the players, be it you know, incumbent you know, integrated gas companies, or oil field services companies, they don't need to own the whole technology development life cycle from ideation to commercialization, but they can play in that technology life cycle where their capabilities are best suited to accelerate the commercialization. So it's okay. this recognition that we've got to bring these solutions out quickly if they are not brought out quickly, then they'll just wither on the vine and die, or they'll be usurped by another competing technology. And so they're all looking for ways that they can scale, be it through their contacts with the uh, broader supply chain, or it's their engineering knowledge, or it's their access to have these field uh, trials where they can make the technology reliable and market ready. And is that, I guess, talk to me about it from the perspective of the startup. What, what is the startup looking to the oil company partner for? Is it capital only? Is it hands-on management? Is it just application of the technology? Is it all three? So I'd say that it's, it's all three. So there's a, a transition through the technology development lifecycle where at the ideation stage, you innovate, you rapidly improve. But once you settle on a design and on the technology, then you have to make sure that it's reliable mm -hmm. and that once you have it commercial, that it's going to work all the time, that it's going to work for the range of field conditions. And oil and gas producers, they have these natural test sites that they can test the equipment or the, the new technology for the range that is required for operation. You know, what as we're moving into these process-based technologies like carbon capture or uh, green hydrogen or um, uh, you know methane pyrolysis, we need to prove the technology at multiple stages of scale. So this event scale, which you know doesn't require too much capital, but when you start going into the pilot scale or to the long duration pilot, and then finally to your first of a kind deployment. These are, are projects where you need engineering design and know-how. You need to start putting in real steel. And there's also time that's required for permitting to mm -hmm. engagement with the regulatory. 
So you also need capital too. Sure. And Judd, you mentioned the word proprietary a couple of times. If I'm an oil company working with one of these startups, am I doing that on a one-to-one -one basis? Or am I funding a startup knowing that one of my competitors is funding the same startup and that technology is going to apply, be applied to, to one or more operators? Well, it's... Carolyn mentioned the the activity of the corporate venture capital activity, and, and you know Carolyn is, is sometimes a bit modest, but but she's following this area extremely closely, and she has you know a database that kind of tracks all of this this information and all the data. And one of the things that certainly you begin to see is that there is overlap. So mm -hmm. there's overlap between you know different companies, and they may either invest in the same round or they may you know kind of come in at different rounds. But there's certainly an understanding that. Uh, your competitors, peers, however you want to designate them, will have access to, you know, will be have access to that same technology. And so it's it's a really great question around um, the motivation, right? So as the oil and gas industry, and you I think you alluded to this in the introduction, but it's thinking about so what, what's the aspiration in the low carbon space? Is it to meet all of these very ambitious targets that they're laying out for themselves around scope one, scope two emissions reduction, eventually scope three emissions reduction? Or is it to, um, and or, you know, I don't, I don't think it's exclusive, or is there an opportunity to build a business around this as well? So I think certainly as a view, there's less competitive differentiation around the decarbonization of your own activities. I think that's something that the oil and gas industry as a whole, collectively, uh, would like to see, you know, all of their, not only themselves, but also their peers make good progress in that space. I think that's, you know, kind of a reputational license operate type issues um, of the industry. As you begin to think about moving into new businesses, there, there's there's two aspects. You know, in some cases, is this a proprietary technology that we can either build a business around or that we can kind of plug in and you know develop a capability? Carolyn mentioned that you don't need to play across the entire value chain, but are there components of it that can uh, go into it? There's another motivation as well, though, and this is kind of, and I, I'm going to turn to Carolyn to maybe do a you know. A, case study she's thought about. But one of the motivations in kind of engaging with and whether it's a, a startup within, you know, a startup or whether it's an industrial firm outside of your industry, but it's to gain knowledge. It's either to gain knowledge of that sector, maybe to gain knowledge of the of the markets, you know, the regional markets. But a really cost effective way to do that is making a few million dollar investment and then, you know, mm -hmm. tapping into that rather than going out and buying, maybe making a multi-billion dollar investment into that space. It's a really cost-effective way, and I think this is the open innovation. You know, one of the reasons that companies move to open innovation, they're, they're trying to be more effective and efficient in how they develop technology. But Caroline, you know, I'm going to I'm going to turn. You know, unless Hill wants to jump in here, but you know, I think the Equinor offshore wind case study that you spent a lot of time thinking about was a really good example of how they did this. Yeah, thanks, Doug. Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, startups are engaging with startups are a really cost-effective way to understand areas and gain capabilities in um, areas that look interesting and that you might want to pursue a business in because you know you get access to the commercial landscape you get access to the technology landscape as well as the regulatory um, mm -hmm. landscape as opposed to building that capability up uh, in-house and, and uh, by yourself so equinor is a really great example of how they had moved into becoming a leader in offshore wind development. So through their corporate venture uh, investment arm, they had made a 
couple early investments in wind generation technologies. And, you know, these technologies and the, these companies, when you look at the track record in Equinor's portfolio, they just made, um, you know, a single investment in them. They didn't have follow-on investments. But through this single investment of these uh, few startups, they were able to understand uh, the commercial landscape, who the major players were. And from that, they were able to take that knowledge and identify promising areas to enter for offshore wind M&A, as well as leading development partners they can farm into to as, as part of the projects that they can choose. And so they, I guess, in the uh, mid-2010s, uh, they started making investments or they started making acquisitions in offshore wind projects in the uh, in the in the North Sea. And you know, they built up this portfolio. And eventually some of this activity started to come to scale where they then went back into their corporate venture investments and started looking for investments that could improve the operation of these offshore wind assets. So, you know, the offshore wind portfolio grew large enough that they could then identify promising technologies to make that operation uh, more efficient. And along the way, during this later stage, as their offshore wind portfolio started becoming at scale, they were, you started to see activities in Equinor's M&A activity associated with offshore wind, where they were treating it almost like your conventional oil and gas asset, where they were then selling off parts of their offshore wind projects to other developers or to other okay. you know, oil and gas companies that were looking at entering offshore wind. And then, you know, finally, to bring things full circle, they started developing these projects on their own. And some of the projects like the Highland Scotland or Highland Pampin, especially, the power from these offshore wind will then go into powering their conventional assets. So you start to see this more holistic look at how these different power sources or these different energy sources support each other in the portfolio, as well as their technology development and acquisition activity. And so how did I, help me put this into perspective in terms of the, the, the dollars involved and where we are today compared to maybe where we are 10 years ago? I mean, is this rivaling, say, exploration or other upstream budget on an absolute dollar sense? And then you mentioned M&A. If I'm going to my board or whatever to justify the acquisition of something in uh, the wind space, am I competing with somebody going to buy an oil asset or a gas asset, or, or is this structured completely independent in, in the mindset of a lot of decision makers within these companies? So in the technology development space, and the you know the budget for R&D, we're starting to see allocation towards clean tech and low carbon technology development commensurate to the scale of conventional oil and gas um, technology development. And, and that's because, you know, as you know, Judd, we had we had described the open innovation model taking place in conventional technology development or technology development for core assets, that has become a lot more cost effective. So companies are no longer bearing the cost of technology development for core assets completely on their own. But at the same time, 
you know, clean tech technology development um, is requiring increasing levels of capital commitment as companies are starting to support these early stage ideas and, and you know, these entrepreneurs in scaling their technologies and bringing it to a commercial level too. So, you know, we're starting to see companies like Shell, where, you know, just in their past um, reporting of their R&D numbers, their, you know, new energies uh, R&D is actually more than their um, upstream R&D that was allocated. If you look at overall investment as well, I mean, so our colleague Chris Delucia does a really good job of tracking mm-hmm. Investment where possible. I'm not sure if you've had, unless you've had Chris on one of these, uh, one of your podcasts before. He's been on a couple times. So, so right, well, excellent. Regular excellent. listeners know he's a real celebrity. Exactly. <laughs> so Chris, Chris follows this really well, and so we we turn to him. But I think, as you know, you know the, the level of investment is you know, so amongst the, at least amongst the segment that's, that reports this quite well, the global integrated. It's, it's going to be about 15 billion dollars in 2022. Is kind of what we're estimating, and it's really interesting to watch how this plays out. The way that we kind of think about this, and the you know, so especially kind of going back to as these types of companies are moving into the low carbon energy transition space, they can make again relatively modest investments at first. Carolyn's example of Equinor is a great one. Maybe took people by surprise that you know an oil company became quickly became an offshore wind developer and operator. But if you were looking in the right places, you would have seen the hints around this over a decade ago. Um, and it really, you know, kind of for people who are paying attention to these sorts of things, it doesn't come as a surprise. You can begin to get early hints around what some of their movements are. But what's interesting is that you kind of look at some of these relative modest investments and then things scale up pretty rapidly. You know, Carolyn, maybe, you know, the Oxy, you know, the, the CCUS is that making a really modest one. But then what was it, six months later, they upped that to like a half a billion dollars or so. Yeah, like. So that's a really great example of, of the capital commitment and, and the comfort. So, you know, these um, corporate vent or these, you know, uh, minority investments in these startups, they also allow companies to get an inside look at the technology and uh, understand it a little bit more. And with the investment with carbon engineering at the, you know, a, a couple of years ago, these corporate venture investments, they're on the order of, you know, one to five million dollars. So Oxy had signed a uh, partnership with Carbon Engineering to develop the first large-scale direct air capture plant um, in the Permian. And this, they were originally going to capture half a million tons of CO2 a year, but this quickly was revised to a million tons a year um, direct air capture. And to build a plant at that scale, this is a major engineering project. Uh, it's on the same type of scale as a uh, refinery or a, um, a, a bitumen upgrader. So this is going to be on the order of hundreds of millions, if not a billion dollars. So going very quickly in that time span from the million dollar level to the hundreds of million dollar level was something that we've seen with this open innovation platform that just allows companies to make and execute on those types of financial decisions much more quickly than their traditional technology development um, and development process that they they traditionally had. And you mentioned some of the success cases, uh, Equinor, Oxy, and others that, that make it through, uh, I suppose, the, the cycle. How big is the graveyard of ideas that we're not hearing about? Uh, you know, a, a million dollar 
you know, here and there maybe isn't that much in the grand scheme of things. And then, you know, the, the good ones you, you take to a billion dollars or half billion dollars, whatever you're saying. Is this, you know, one idea out of 10 that's working, one idea out of 100? How choosy are they being in, in the early stages of their uh, kind of venture capital procedure? In some cases, we're seeing multiple investments and multiple small scale bets mm -hmm. that are being made within the same type of technology domain. So, you know, Oxy is, has um, invested in, you know, directive capture, but they have also invested in point source capture. Chevron has uh, invested in a couple uh, point source capture technologies. These are relatively small bets, but there's also a greater feeling in the industry for sharing information and sharing details about the investments. And so an investment that's done in one startup is, is not um, you know, done in isolation, but rather you know, the um, different corporate venture groups, you know, they talk at forums. A lot of these startups are also uh, supported by government funding um, or demand side funding such as uh, consumer demand um, from uh, you know, organizations like Stripe or Microsoft, where the RFP requires some disclosure about um, you know, the technology and how that technology is being developed too. So in this open innovation framework, not only is there a sense to be open with the company walls of the investor, but also the technology developer mm -hmm. has a incentive to be more open about how they're developing their technology and the milestones and the challenges that they're meeting too. So everyone can accelerate. And okay. And, and Judd, are we seeing this across, um, we, we've talked about some of the integrated oil majors publicly traded. Are we seeing this from NOCs as well? And how did the oil field services sector play into this? Is that competition or partnership? Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's it's a really exciting space. And you asked around, you know, where's the graveyard of ideas? Um, there, there's some. We certainly cited some early examples where there's some successes. But I think we're in such an early, or maybe not the earliest stages, but we're in the early to middle stages, and it's still meant to see like how this is going to play out. We follow lots of different areas. You know, a good example. And you know, so so number one, there is a great diversity of companies that are getting involved in this. There's certainly a segment of companies that look at, we are primarily an upstream oil and gas company and EMP is our business and anything that we do in low carbon will be in support of reducing the emissions associated with our operations, full stop. There are other companies that, you know, but I don't think it's defined by size. And there are other companies that, whether it's the NOCs or whether it's, um, you know, some of the, the small majors or independents that are actively playing this as well. And certainly Oxy would, you know, maybe fit into to one of those categories, watching what Neptune Energy is doing um, in the Dutch part of the North Sea around their Poseidon and doing one of the first examples of the first uh, pilot around green hydrogen offshore and trying to, for their case, you know, trying to position themselves as a, as a clean energy technology company, but also repurposing their assets. They have a number of platforms that are available and there's an opportunity. Can we repurpose some of these assets and our capabilities to move in this direction? A number of the NOCs, you know, certainly the NOCs are getting very active on in the hydrogen space. And then, you know, depending on there's certainly, you know, Echo Patrol also is getting quite actively involved in uh, 
nature-based solutions. I mean, kind of that's another whole other topic. And then you see some of the the Asian NOCs that are looking, you know, initially what turns into kind of decarbonizing your own operations, especially those that are developing some high CO2 intense gas resources. But they're doing so in the way that they're then doing the carbon capture and, and the sequestration. They're testing out right now the feasibility, the economic feasibility of giving themselves flexibility to turn this into a business as well. So it may be one where you kind of get familiar with it, but with an eye, you know, kind of on the on the distance in the future is that can we build a business out of this as well? Oil field services, absolutely. You know, they've been you know kind of heavily involved. Carolyn mentioned SIPEM and some of their forays into um, into CCUS. Baker Hughes is another great example where they're building out the the CCUS value chain, but they've also made a number of investments and announced a number of partnerships associated with geothermal. And that's a great example of a technology and a form of energy there. You know, I, I don't think there is a significant consensus right now whether that is one that's going to emerge into a significant source of 24-7 zero carbon power. But you see a company like Baker Hughes making some investments, announcing some partnerships and trying to develop a, a test out developing a business around that. So. Um, and, you know, and their peers are doing many of the same things. You get some really interesting companies. Now some of the industrial air companies are beginning to get in CCUS space. And, you know, gosh, they're actually developing a subsurface capability and trying to play across, you know, more of the value chain, which, you know, is something that, you know, I think came as a surprise to many of us. But uh, but it's really interesting to watch how companies are positioning themselves. And I wouldn't say that, you know, you know, obviously we're, you know, kind of the we're still watching actively to see which direction they go and, you know, where they have success and where they, they may, you know, kind of like leave things and uh, kind of drop things a little bit. And I think the energy value chain in this new energy and low carbon space is so broad and the solutions are going to differ from location to location that, you know, companies are, are going to approach the transition or find their way, you know, on the other side, you know, in, in different ways. Mm -hmm. Some might focus on, you know, hydrogen and, you know, industrial decarbonization. Others will become clean power generators. Others may become, um, you know, more commercial focused. I think we've just introduced maybe 15 digressions to, to explore, <laughs> hopefully in, in future conversations, uh, because this is, it sounds like a very exciting and very dynamic space. But, but before we wrap up, I'd, I'd like to ask you both the same question. Carolyn, I'll start with you. Um, you know, Judd mentioned, you know, some of the background that gets us to today, you know, to 10, 10 or 15 years worth of integration. And we are back recently to $100 oil. Um, which is throwing off um, cash flows into these companies that have been managing much more constrained budgets uh, at the corporate level. Um, given the more uh, robust earnings that the sector is seeing, what, what do you expect to see over the coming months? Are, are we going to see an accelerated commitment to some of these uh, venture ideas, or, or is that perhaps a distraction um, where, where some of what was uh, going to uh, the, the, the venture capital is going back to the, the traditional energy side of things? I think the long target is there and it, that North Star has always been there. So companies are still going to remain focused in their open innovation technology development on these decarbonization, these you know, new energy and uh, low carbon um, technologies. However, for the technologies that can be applied to their core business, they'll be looking for technologies to make their core businesses more clean and with lower carbon intensity. So, 
you might see investments in more investments in CCUS to address those scope three emissions, um, to address the emissions associated with their refining activities. Um, mm -hmm. We'll also see activities and investments associated with them being able to be uh, better at uh, detecting and quantifying uh, greenhouse gas emissions or um, you know, other technologies that will help them run their fields more efficiently with lower fuel consumption. And those technologies also have a place in a new energy business environment. So the same technologies that you'd be used in for quantifying greenhouse gas emissions, those could also be used to quantify uh, CO2 emissions as well. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would just say that it's, it's probably too early. We've seen, I think, the sector displaying great discipline is that they're, they're largely maintaining their investment commitment. We're not seeing either, you know, kind of publicly stated or, or even you know, there's discussion that, you know, they're, they're significantly accelerating or shifting things either back into upstream. I, I think certainly, you know, their, their energy transition, low carbon commitments remain intact the one interesting thing and carolyn alluded to this a little bit but you know there, there's a certain pace at which these investments have to occur and so you know especially these are you know in some cases um not fully tested technologies and whether that's you know the hydrogen space whether it's the ccus space and you can't ramp up like a hockey stick these are things that you know, have to go through a certain progression um, major capital projects and so it's really difficult to, you know, even even if companies wanted to to significantly accelerate their investment, there needs to be a certain pace in which they go because this is this is what, this is the energy transition, right? And this is a a very long. It's going to be a, a long transition, and uh, it's it's very difficult to uh, to switch that flip that switch overnight. All right. Well, thank you uh, both very much for uh, joining the conversation, and I hope we can uh, we can continue it as. Uh, more news comes out. Uh, we'll, uh, Thanks for stopping. Thank you. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.